at this point, you can find anything you want on the internet to support. If you have a, an outcome already, you can find something on the internet to support that. Whether it's you know on social media, on Reddit, you know a, a polarized news site, there will be something that will confirm your point of view. And so, there's very little motivation to change that. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Gabrielle Bluestone is a journalist and licensed attorney from New York whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, New York Observer, Sunday Times Magazine, Esquire, InStyle, and Gawker. She's the Emmy-nominated producer of Netflix's Fire and the associate producer of Different Flowers, winner of the 2017 Kansas City Film Festival Prize. Tell us about you, um, where you were born, where you were raised, where you went to school, uh, all of that good stuff. Sure. Um, I was born and raised in New York City. I went to school in New York um, and then GW undergrad and American University for law school. And then I promptly left D.C. and never looked back. Um, I actually got started in media sort of by accident. I was in my second year of law school and the website Gawker put out a call for writers to audition. I had been a journalism major undergrad, but never thought that that could be, you know, a real career that would actually pay you. Um, so just as a lark, just to see what would happen, I applied and they accepted my application, kind of ruined my life, but also made it at the same time. Uh, so I became their night and weekend editor, um, finished out law school, passed the bar and started working for them full time and never looked back. Um, so then I, after their shutdown, I went to Vice, or Jezebel and then Vice, and it was at Vice that I first came across the Fire Festival story, which is how we're all here today. Yeah, I when I saw your book promoted for the first time, I got kind of excited because I fancy myself a kind of a connoisseur of bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, I've spent a good part of my professional life um, looking, you know, encountering and confronting bullshitters uh, in an effort to, you know, find companies to sell short. And I've visited a lot of businesses and I've met a lot of um, self-promoters and, and self-interested business people. And so I was curious as to what made you, what attracted you to this topic? How did you get pulled into this orbit and, and, and want to write about it? Um, I think I have a very similar mindset to yours. Um, and certainly growing up in New York, where you see kind of this excess and conspicuous consumption in your face all the time, you start to get interested in how people are doing it. Um, And once you realize a lot of it is bullshit, um, it's kind of, you know, an intriguing topic. It's fun to catch people in that. You know, if I hadn't gone into journalism, I would have continued on a career path with criminal law. Um, You know, I was interning, I was working for Gawker and interning for the Kings County District Attorney's Office in the Major Narcotics Bureau at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. It actually turned out that one of our intern coordinators had been, uh, illegally wiretapping people in the office. She had uh, had an alleged affair with a detective that they worked with. And so she forged a judge's signature and had been doing that at work. So it really was like, there is no place where you are safe from con artists. Like it is everywhere. Um, And when I first, I, you know, I saw, I heard about the fire festival from 
from friends. I saw people I knew posting about wanting to go. And that's kind of what got me looking into it in the first place. And when I looked at their website, the delta between what they were promising and what they had managed to present on this site, you know, where there should be photos of the site, but it was all renderings. And Mm -hmm. it just seemed very off. And it triggered that kind of like spidey sense where you're like, there's something very wrong here. Um, right. And then from there, it was off to the races. So so just level set this for the people listening that don't know what the fire festival is, who have never heard of Billy um, McFarlane. Tell us who he is and what the fire festival was just to kind of, you know, give us a baseline to start this conversation. So Billy McFarlane, in my opinion, is very much a product of this um, hyper-connected online millennial and Gen Z world that has kind of taken over social media. And, you know, instead of being like a separate place, like we're all online, we're all in this marketplace. And Billy McFarland was at the time a 25 year old who figured out how to capitalize on that and how to market to young people um, what he thought they wanted. So one of those things was the fire festival, which was meant to be the most luxurious, uh, fabulous music festival of the century with, you know, America, the world's top models, uh, flown in on private jets to stay on uh, private islands and yachts. And it was just like this, like fever dream of what, um, you know, the rich kids of Instagram were posting. And he figured out a way to market that to kids who saw it on their screens, but didn't know how to go about getting into that world or didn't have the money for it. Uh, So when, those kids arrived on the island instead of finding, you know, this beautiful uh, paradise that he had promised. It was a gravel development pit located next to a sandals on the island of Great Exuma. Um, there were FEMA tents set up and IKEA furniture and soggy mattresses. Uh, instead of, you know, the Steven Star designed cuisine, there were those sad cheese sandwiches in the styrofoam container that you might have seen on the internet. It was a real lesson in Instagram versus reality, and it happened all in real time. What I'm interested in, uh, what I was fascinated by reading the book, is that I just, I just thought that there would be an 11th hour, let's pull the parachute, let's shut it down, oh my gosh, we're just not going to be able to pull this off. And what part of that con man's personality keeps moving forward, even when you know, when I move forward, the gig is going to be up. What did you learn about him in that regard? Well, I think his uh, his confidence and his ability to pull it off never wavered, even in the face of you know facts that should have indicated otherwise to him. But he was also so deep in that con that there was no way out. They hadn't obtained festival insurance. They had um, secured a last minute investment based on factored receivables. So you know he had to execute this thing, or he would have been in even worse trouble than he he ended up being. And I, I think he, he had an, and I don't think he's necessarily wrong in this. I think he thought if he could get everyone there that people might go along with it. And I think that that speaks to the way that we use social media today, right? Where you might not be having the best time, but you'll certainly post a picture and pretend that you're having the time of your life. Mm-hmm. So I really think if, you know, at least a couple bands had gone on or if it hadn't rained and the mattresses weren't soggy, that people might not have exposed what a fraud it was because they didn't want to reveal themselves as having been duped. He's relying kind of on them being part of the con as well, ultimately. And that if, if, because they won't want to look like they were duped, they'll go out, post good pictures, and then that would allow him maybe a second year of the fire yeah. festival. 
And, you know, the funny thing is it still cracks me up when I think about it as this thing was devolving in real time on social media and in the news. Um, he was sending out emails promising people that they would get, you know, four VIP tickets to next year's fire festival. <laughs> and it'll be so much better. You know, don't worry. We'll fix it for you. Um, so the level of delusion or the level of confidence there was remarkable. The title of your book, Hype, How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet and Why We're Following, you know, it really it speaks to a broader trend, a bigger picture than just Billy McFarlane. So you, you do a great job of telling that fire Festival story threaded throughout the book, but you also talk about, in general, what's happening across the internet and how people are um, to different degrees promoting themselves and, and trying to sell product. Of course, we're constantly being sold to, and you have this great, you have the great line from the book that says um, the internet is filled with people pretending to be brands and brands pretending to be people. And of course, brands pretend to be people to try to sort of manufacture this authenticity around their product and authenticity of course sells. But to the extent this has become, you know, this 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 frenzy over the internet, uh, uh, whether you know it's different forms of self actualization or, or you know, life coaches and, and these sort of things, is it Gen Z and maybe millennials that are more susceptible to this? Is there a generational divide? You know, honestly, I don't think so. Um, I think we're all easily susceptible to it. And I, I remarked on this in the book, you know, it's everyone from, you know, the 28 year old who showed up at a pizza parlor because he was convinced by the internet that there was sex trafficking going on there all the way up to Henry Kissinger, who is, you know, very old, uh, yeah. not, you know, falling for Theranos. You know, there was a Fast Company article, I think, from 1996, talking about how people were starting to become brands. Um, and certainly, I think, you know, under capitalism and the gig economy, you're no longer, you're like a free agent. You have to market yourself for the next company, for the next gig, for the next big break. Um, and, you know, everyone pads their resume a little bit. And when your resume is a digital, you know, your Instagram and Facebook, these are, um resumes for your personality almost. And so people become hyper-focused on the way that they present online and less concerned with whether that bears any resemblance to reality, I think. I think that's right. You have this line in the book. You say, we're a world that values the signifiers of success over actual achievement. And that really got me thinking, I'm curious for your take on this. Is humility dying as a, as a so. value that we really... Uh, historically have thought a lot of, you know, is, is it fading away? I think it is. Um, and one example of that, that I think there's been a rise of, especially with influencers is this performative sort of authenticity where people are selectively becoming vulnerable on the internet, but it's all part of a greater marketing campaign. There's always, you know, a motive behind it. It's never just to be yourself. Um, you know, it's to endear your audience to you better. And um, I think that it really infects the way that we're living our normal lives that have nothing to do with business. And We've talked a lot on this podcast about how we can live in a world, we can choose to live in a world now where all the information we get affirms our biases uh, and our comfort, right? And I'm just wondering, because you, you go a lot into that in the book about how you can surround yourself and the algorithms are designed to feed you the very information that you want to hear that's going to keep you on the longest and make you the best product that they want you to have, right? Which is, mm -hmm. we're going to keep your eyeballs and your attention and you're going to scroll through all this. I'm wondering if you think that we 
are simply victims of the social media companies and it's made us soft because we're only getting information we like. And we do this because we are no longer tough enough to deal with truths that are uncomfortable. I think it's a combination of both, right? There's the 1950s Solomon Ash experiment with uh, the three lines where you put a group of people in a room and ask them to pick which line most closely matched it. And what they didn't know, obviously, was there were plants in the audience who were instructed to pick the most obviously incorrect answer. And I think it was up to 75% of the people in the study chose the wrong answer too, because they didn't want to be different. They wanted, you know, they succumbed to the peer pressure of it all. Um, I think certainly social media has really exacerbated that. And one of the things that's interesting is that we're no longer, you know, reading the same news article and disagreeing about it. We're reading completely different news articles. We're living in completely different realities. And it's very easy to become ensconced in that without ever realizing it. And, you know, at, at this point, you can find anything you want on the internet to support. If you have a, an outcome already, you can find something on the internet to support that, whether it's, you know, on social media, on Reddit, you know, a, a polarized news site, there will be something that will confirm your point of view. And so there's very little motivation to change that. You're right. There is all kinds of people, um, even very experienced or, you know, what you would think, you know, really intelligent people who should know better do fall for scams all the time and, and, and don't see through it. You mentioned Henry Kissinger being on the board of Theranos, which is the Elizabeth Holmes, you know, a company that, that famously imploded. So George Schultz was on the board of Theranos also. You know, these guys are all, you know, very, um, I don't know, taken by this young woman who, who, who was thought to be a genius. And, and you see it, you know, you write about in the book about Adam Newman at WeWorks and what he was able to accomplish, how much money he was able to raise. And, and he was just a consummate bullshitter. Um, uh, and there's Elon Musk, who's still going strong and is – you know, really is a genius on some level, but very few people know about or, or think about the SEC fines and the, the labor law violations and the, and the COVID denialism, you know, all done in the name of keeping his commercial interests rolling. And of course, Tesla could have never made it had he not had that self-promotional uh, side of him that allowed him to keep raising capital to keep it afloat. I think what what they all have in common and, you know, the Donald Trumps of the world, too, is that they are genius marketers. They are very good at selling a product and it doesn't seem to matter whether that product actually exists. It's just how good they are at pushing it out. I mean, Elon Musk has turned like a, a little subway tunnel for Tesla's into this, you know, mystical, groundbreaking, earth shattering transportation right. system like that's not what it is you it's know not he, what it is. he touts his auto you know self-driving cars that you have to have a person driving them yeah. um so it really it, i don't there was that meme going around where everything's cake for a while um and i think of it like everything is marketing this makes sense one of the scat like grifter stories that i've been fascinated with ever since is how donald trump was fundraising off of you know this idea that the election was stolen and then stealing money from the people that he convinced to give him money i don't know if you saw this but the donation forms had this like small print that required you to uncheck it yeah and these people are losing their life savings and they were his most devoted followers well then again but that goes back to where whether people can accept responsibility and the softness that i think people now have their inability to deal with truth 
prevents them from getting it. I mean, you saw that on the NRCC site, they said, if you uncheck this box, we're going to have to tell Donald Trump. And I thought, wow, if you can't realize that that's a cult, then there's nothing that we can do for you. I was on his text distribution list for a while. I signed up like when the election first started. I was still writing politics for Gawker back then. And the texts that they were sending were like, this is Donald Trump. Like, I want to see your name on this list on my desk. Donate right now. Like, just the most absurd marketing. And obviously, people were responding to it. Of course, yeah. You know, for years, I think most people know that he he lobbied Forbes actively, you know, to 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 be on the Forbes 400 list, the 400 wealthiest Americans and and push the level at which he was on. But you tell a good story in the book about how the Kardashians did something similar, lobbying Forbes to be able to get Kylie Jenner on the cover to tell that story and how they worked that. Yeah. So that was, you know, kind of a big story a little while back because they featured Kylie Jenner as the world's youngest self-made billionaire and really touted her as this visionary businesswoman. And, you know, Kris Jenner is pretty good at what she does, um, whether, but, but what came out later was that, you know, despite this fawning cover, uh, Forbes came forward to say that they believed that the Kardashians had actually run this really intricate campaign to get them to fall for the this lie that she was a billionaire and you know she was only a couple hundred million off it wasn't it didn't make a big difference in the long run but getting this moniker was so important to them so the magazine says that they provided um falsified tax documents and had you know an entire pr team pushing this at them until they kind of uh, and actually, they rejected it at first. And then I believe it was, um, I forget the magazine, but another magazine ran with the story and with the documents that they were initially dubious of. And then once it took hold in the media, it was almost like too late to push back on it. And they fell in line. Um, so it's kind of fascinating. And, you know, Donald Trump isn't the only one. I think it was Wilbur Ross is also accused of yep, Wilbur doing Ross that. Also. Yeah. And so it's it's more important for these people to be viewed as a billionaire than it is for them to just like enjoy their hundreds of millions of dollars, which is crazy to me. That's a really good point. I I, I often say that in conversations with friends, you know, it, it's like, why is it so important to be known as a billionaire? I mean, they're, they're, they're securely rich, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but that word billionaire is thrown around a lot. And the, the funny thing is there's really, I think globally right now, there's maybe somewhere 2,800 or 3,000 billionaires globally, and 700 of them are Americans, literally 700 or 800 Americans have a net worth of a billion dollars. You know, uh, there's just not that many, but it seems like the media is so quick to jump on any celebrity who makes the claim. And it's interesting because like I said, these people are securely rich. There's no reason except for, for self-promotional purposes to be called a billionaire. It's funny, you know, even these people that have enough money to never have to see a neighbor a day in their lives are obsessed with keeping up with the Joneses. Like there's no, there's nothing that will inoculate you. Age, wealth, you know, race, yes. gender. There's nothing to, to stop this, uh, this pressure from taking hold. The thing that interests me, though, is that it requires a confluence of events for this type of susceptibility to these con men. It requires uh, audacious marketing combined with a post-truth world. If you just have the audacious marketing, you're going to be held accountable at some point. And when I was going through uh, all the reading about uh, Adam Newman and the founder of WeWork uh, that's in your book, that he had a line that I had not heard before I read, read the book that I thought was fascinating. He said, WeWork's valuation and size today, that those are much more based on our energy and spirituality 
than it is on a multiple of revenue. And I thought, man, we've arrived. We've arrived in all crazy town when we're going to value a business on their energy and their spirituality. So you've seen it creep into even Wall Street. Talk about that a little bit. I was fascinated by Adam Newman and what he was able to sell. Yeah, well, that's what's kind of funny is like he was able to pull this off. And I think maybe, you know, working in the hedge fund world, you can talk to this a bit too. But the value of his company was just how much money someone was willing to give him. It had no basis in what the pro, I mean, he had an office subleasing company. It really was not that, that big of a deal or that groundbreaking, but because he sold it as this lead generation, um, people were just lining up to give him cash. And um, it's kind of funny that what, you know, what made it all come crashing down was that they decided to IPO and were forced to kind of put in writing how they felt this company was worth that. And then to see it on paper was so underwhelming uh, that, you know, it basically fell apart overnight. Yeah, I I think in general, especially in the tech world and the startup world, um, where there tend not to be, you know, at least starting out a product or it's based more on, you know, clever marketing than what the actual business is, that there's a tendency to overvalue um, just charismatic leaders or, you know, a good advertisement. Yeah, Adam Newman was able to to raise an incredible amount of money um, based upon his ability to sell. Uh, he was financed by Masayoshi's son, um, which is SoftBank, and you know they had so much money. You know they 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 offered him more than he initially asked for because they wanted to put more capital to work. And yeah, and and you know there's a there's a saying on Wall Street that says when the when when the ducks are quacking, you feed them. And that's exactly what happened. You know, when he had said that publicly about uh, the company being valued to a multiple of culture, and, and, and I remember distinctly thinking to myself, oh my God, I, I hope this thing, I hope this thing really does go public because I, I, I need to get a borrow on it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm reminded, you know, talking about this, I'm, I'm actually reminded of something that Warren Buffett has said um, in the past. He talks about his father and having an inner scorecard versus an outer scorecard. He said, you know, my father taught me about having an, uh, uh, an inner scorecard. And that inner scorecard is what, you know, that being true to whether or not you you've, it's really the question of, of mastery versus bamboozlement. Are you really good at a thing or do you want people to think you're good at a thing? And is it, is it more important to be the greatest in the world or one of the best in the world at a thing and know that you are, but no one else actually see it or recognize it? Or is it more important for you to have other people see you as great, as great at something, but you know, personally, you're, you're really not that. And it seems to me that there's this trend towards people needing an outer scorecard to get their self-worth from. And I'm curious, you know, just in how you think about it, do you think that, do you think the internet is just a reflection of how much of that is already out there? Or do you think the internet is actually driving or making people behave differently because it's there and it's so easy? I think there's definitely that underlying sense that has always been kind of the tension, right, in public life. But I think that the internet has accelerated it. Um, And it's not just who you are in business, it's who you are as a person. You know, to circle back to the Kardashians example that we were just talking about, there was like a kind of a crazy story, I think, over Easter weekend, where an unedited photo of Khloe Kardashian was released on the internet. And they went into overdrive trying to wipe 
this accurate representation of what this woman looks like off of the internet. They were filing cease and desists and copyright claims against, you know, random Reddit users and Instagrammers um, because they were so terrified of having this image that they built undermined by the reality of who they are. And these are, you know, whether they're billionaires or not, these are some of the wealthiest women on the planet. They're the most known women on the planet. Um, And even they have to present this, they have to trick the public into thinking that they're more than they are. Like even they can't be happy. Um, I I note this in the book also, but you know, they, they employ paparazzi agencies whose job is to take fake candidates of them and then airbrush them and release them to the public to create this alternative reality. Yeah. It's, it's wild. This is a famous trick in Hollywood. You know, um, a lot of quote candid, you know, paparazzi photos are, have been staged by publicists who, you know, make the phone call and let them know that, you know, X, Y, Z movie star is going to be at this restaurant or this club or whatever the case is. Yeah. Yeah, but they take it one step further. These photos are edited. These aren't even, you know, they know they're there, they're posing for them, and then there's right. a post-production value right. added they control, to it. They control the photograph, right? Yeah. So here's what I'm interested in. You know, look, we, we know that we're always attracted to storytellers. Storytellers, as a result, are going to get our attention. And there's no filter on who the storyteller is. So if you have no ethics, but you're a great storyteller, you can spin a web. And you can ensnare some people. Ultimately, you're discovered for having just ensnared people and not actually having a product behind it, whether it's WeWork or the Fire Festival. And I'm interested in how people who were caught up in the trap, how they ultimately thought about themselves and whether they learned a lesson. When you were really digging in specifically, let's say, on Fire Festival, the people who went the people who spent the money and ended up with a terrible sandwich with a soggy mattress, do they think, ah, he just got it wrong? Or do they think I got it wrong? I think they feel, they felt tricked. Um, but what really stood out to me was after Billy McFarland was arrested for running the fire festival scam, he was released on bail. And while he was out on bail, he launched a second scam targeting the same people that he had sold the fire festival tickets to. Um, and this time he was promising exclusive access to events like the Met Gala and, you know, the Victoria's Secret fashion show. And there was an offer to go to uh, see LeBron LeBron James play and then go to like a nightclub with the team after like these things that clearly you can't buy access to. And he managed to steal another hundred thousand dollars from the same people. Um, So I I don't think anyone, well, certainly some people learn their lesson, but I I think people remained as trusting or as receptive to these kinds of offers, even having been burned once. Um, And then another interesting thing just in, in, researching this book is that people don't really tend to have a lot of pity for people who are caught in scams. I think people who are outside of it or who didn't get harmed too much, look at the people who got really hurt and are like, well, I'm too smart to fall for that. So there is this like internal bias against, I think, having that reflection and, and moving forward from it. That's a great point. We, we like to be self-congratulatory that we, you know, avoided it or we were smart enough to see it. That's very, that's very interesting. Do you think a person like Billy McFarlane or uh, some of the other people you talked about, you know, I mean, he's an extreme case, you know, some people who are self-promotional are trying to deliver, 
on their brand or, you know, and deliver something of value. You know, it's not all sinister to be self-promotional to a, to a point, but people like, like McFarlane who have taken it to that extreme, do you, have you thought about very much whether or not that kind of lack of ethics or the moral illiteracy is something that's innate or maybe it comes from something that happened to him or the way he grew up? Do you think there's any patterns there? I mean, uh, Billy McFarlane is an interesting case because he actually did have a psychological assessment conducted as part of his sentencing report. Um, and I think I have to check the specifics, but, you know, his doctors reported him as having ADHD and, you know, some level of bipolar issues. Um, I mean, obviously he is an outlier, but I do think he is also very much a product of his time and of that industry. I mean, before the Fire Festival, Billy McFarland's first, you know, real business outing was with this startup that he started in college called Sling. That was sort of supposed to be a Google Circles, Reddit hybrid. And, you know, he got smart, you know, experienced investors to give him hundreds of thousands of dollars for that. And all he had to do to do that was to show the appearance of users using the site. In reality, he had recruited a network of fellow college kids who he was paying, you know, $10 a link to, to create the appearance that people were using it. And when the thing fell apart, nothing happened to him. All he did was walk away with this legend of having successfully started a startup out of college. Um, the measure of success wasn't the product that he produced. It was how much money he was able to get. And so I think he, he took that lesson with him and really ran with it. Did the writing of this book change your relationship with social media? Very much so. Yes. How, how did it change? You know, before that, I was following the influencers. I was following the lifestyles um, in part because my friends were and in part because it looked very attractive. And I think the combination of writing this book and writing this book during a pandemic really affected the way that I use those sites. Um, especially in media, you hear people talking about what a hell site Twitter is or what a hell site Instagram is. And I can't believe I'm stuck here. The fact is like these places are bad because of the way that we've, that we're using them because of the people that we're following, because the way we've allowed the algorithm to kind of adapt to our using habits. So I unfollowed all the, all the influencers. I unfollowed all the brands and now I just follow, you know, like chill, cool things that, you know, relax me or make me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, I follow a lot of cooking Instagrams now because I find that to be soothing. Like it it makes me happy to see instead of jealous or lonely or having that fear of missing out. Yeah. That's actually this exact quote um, that I just love. This is uh, Natalia Antonova. And she says, we've become more isolated. We're lonelier. Our emotions are therefore more easily manipulated. And this is, why we fall for scams. When you see how lonely we really are on a regular basis, I think that's one of the biggest factors as to why, even though we have the tools at our disposal, a part of us just wants to be fooled just so we can feel less alone. And I I was so struck by that because again, that goes to my question of, do you think the people who went to the fire festival learned anything? And the point is that you're making really is that they really aren't. They're, they're not even looking to learn something. They just want to feel less alone. And yet, as you went through this journey on your own, you discovered there is a way to interact with social media that's healthier and soothing. But it's this constant check of, well, how does this make me feel? Right. And that's the discipline I think that we're lacking is, well, what is this doing to me? And, you know, as, a, as an experiment, um, before I kind of re, reconfigured the way that 
I was being served content, um, I actually tried to delete Instagram off my phone. And I would find myself randomly opening the app that had slid over to take its place on my home screen without realizing why. I'd be like, why is this so? Like, how did I get here? It was such, it was so um, ingrained in my subconscious that, you know, I was even consciously trying to quit. I was still going into it. So I think we underestimate like how much these apps have their hooks in us and how conscious you have to be to extricate yourself from it. Yeah, it's powerful. I read an article the other day about young women who were taking in the filtered version of their face from a social media app, I think Snapchat or something else that does that sort of thing, and bringing it into a cosmetic surgeon to say, well, I want my eyes to look like this. I, I want to look like this. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, that is insane, but really sad. You know, this is what it's doing to some people. So I actually, um, I interviewed a plastic surgeon as part of the book um, about this. They call it like Snapchat dysmorphia or Instagram face. Um, But the way that seeing these highly filtered images and the way it affects us. And, you know, I think that is a a nice callback to the Khloe Kardashian thing, too, because when that picture of her came out, she actually, you know, she posted this very uh, blurry video of her purporting to show what her body really looks like. Um, You could kind of see that it was filtered anyway. But um, she was saying, you know, there's so much pressure that, like, I, you know, I couldn't have that picture out there. Like, I'm expected to, to meet a certain ideal. Um, and so there has been this massive rise in uh, injectables, like fillers, and people having plastic surgery to look more like the idealized version that they could look like on. They want to look offline the way that they're making themselves look online, which right. is crazy. And, and, and women like uh, uh, Kate Winslet. And I think Alicia Keys, I'm not sure exactly because I'm not tied into uh, what they said in particular, but I think Alicia Keys said something about not wearing makeup anymore. And Kate Winslet, I think, won't allow herself to be airbrushed. And they are rightly celebrated by many women for taking that stance. Yeah. I mean, this has long been an issue, right? Airbrushing and and these idealized versions of women in magazines. But I think the fact that it is so easy now to apply it to yourself you know, it's no longer you're seeing what models look like when they're airbrushed. You're seeing what you would look like airbrushed and wishing that that were you. Yeah. Um, there's been this huge rise in call-out accounts now that, you know, track down the original Getty image that a celebrity might be posting and then compares what the real picture looked like to what they're posting. And it is shocking sometimes. Um, and one of the things that the plastic surgeon told me is that doctors themselves are not immune to this pressure, that a lot of doctors who have before and after pictures on their Instagram pages are actually Photoshopping the results as well. So you really can't trust anything wow. you're wow. seeing. Wow. Amazing. Uh, ultimately, Billy McFarlane goes off to prison, serves the serving a six year sentence. But this week there was the announcement that there was a class action settlement of um, $7,200. Um, is, is that money there? Is there money to pay these folks? And from where did it come? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I know that there is a bankruptcy trustee who has been clawing back some of the payments to artists. I think, uh, you know, Kendall Jenner, ben- Bella Hadid, those kind of promoters who are involved might be giving some of that money back or are being sued for it. So there is some money circulating, but um, it's not coming from Billy McFarland. He owes $26 million in restitution, which he hasn't paid anything towards. And he also um, owes uh, this guy from North Carolina, Seth Krosno, who is a blogger who was in, you know, went to the festival and has 
had a lot of fun with teasing it ever since. Um, he won a $5 million judgment uh, separate from the class action. So I don't know how they're going to collect on that, but there is, you know, a lot of, a lot of debt floating around now. We'll see if we ever hear from him again. Um, Gabrielle Bluestone's book is called Hype, How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet and Why We Are Following. Thanks for uh, coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck with the book. Thank you. So, Ed, what we didn't get to with her, and I, I meant to, and you and I have talked about this, is actually the last line of, of her book or the last paragraph of her book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a quote from Dr. Uh, William Hazeltine. And he says, we are always emotional and sometimes rational. It's just human nature. Belief trumps facts every time. And I think that that's kind of the, the gist of yours and mine's podcast. What we're trying to understand is why are we so willing to have belief trump facts? And I can't get around the fact that ultimately it is because we lack courage and strength. Well, I mean, we, we've talked about this a lot. It's kind of you know, a recurring theme. I think that the reality is that when somebody holds a belief, a lot of one's beliefs are tethered to their identity, how they see themselves and how they feel you know, what it is they represent and, and their place in, in the world. And, and when they receive a fact that contradicts what it is they believe to be true, it causes them to question their identity. And it's very uncomfortable. It and, is uncomfortable, but, but it just seems to me that the alternative is worse because now I'm having to live in with an identity that I know in the back of my brain to not be accurate and so I have to live every day with that, whereas the choice that I'm given of free will allows me to recreate and re-identify myself. I'm just not sure I connect with why people don't gravitate more toward that. I don't think this, I think this is just part of the human condition. I mean, I've seen, you know, he, she was talking about the, you know, we talked about uh, the, the McFarland incident with, with, with uh, the fire festival. And we talked about a little bit about uh, uh, Adam Newman and, and, and Musk's, you know, propensity to be self-promotional to the point of skating the line. You know, I, I see this in a smaller scale, you know, uh, in the investment world a lot. I mean, I don't want to name any people or, or companies, but I, I've been to a company where just recently had been uh, gone public and they had built out this incredible new headquarters with the IPO funds and the CEO had installed a television studio so that he could do his media hits without having to go down to the local station. I visited a company where the CEO had a small museum uh, 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 showing all of his accomplishments and his assets, you know, in the lobby. I've had guys come to me um, promoting an idea. They had, they had, uh, apparently bought the rights to the phrase, who's your daddy and pitched me and some of my partners on investing in an energy drink that would carry the name. Who's your daddy. Um, I've been flown on a jet. I've been flown on a jet to Vancouver to, to participate in a meeting about a gold mine in Brazil. Um, I've walked into a company that I knew from their, public financials were losing $10 million a quarter and you walk into the lobby 
and I see this incredibly beautiful um, view of the ocean, expensive modern art and modern furniture in the lobby decked out. You could just tell when someone doesn't have a concern for how much money they're going to spend of other people's money. And it's a starting point. And, and you start, and when you meet the people, when you meet the management, you start to see that they are bullshitters, you know, and there's all kinds of signs and, you know, you're going to laugh, but I mean, some of these things are superficial, but you know, when you encounter a guy, you know, wearing a lot of male jewelry, if you can smell his cologne, if he's got a hair piece, you know, there's all sorts of things you pick up on and you, I, I can't always explain it, but I know it when I see it, you know, I have a nose for this. And like I told her at the beginning of the conversation, I'm a connoisseur of bullshit. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, in this hypothetical, you have purchased tickets to the fire festival. Okay. Yeah. You went soggy mattress, a bad sandwich. Are you, <laughs> are you part of the class action that, that, that goes after him? Uh, yes, I think I would be. I mean, I can't imagine myself in that position of, you know, I guess I'm one of these people who want to be self-congratulatory about not being fooled, but I, I but you know, I'm a natural skeptic. I don't believe anything. But this is my whole point. There's a 0% chance I'm part of the class action because I look at that and think, right, but I'm the one that bought into the BS. I'm responsible for that. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. You know, let's say I was an investor in a business and, um, uh, the, the, and I was a victim of fraud. There was some sort of skim happening or, or, or some sort of, you know, malfeasance and I was a creditor of the business or an equity investor, I would pursue, you know, legal avenues to go after the perpetrators for sure. Yeah. I feel differently if I'm, if I'm a, let's say a, a vendor, then I feel like, well, wait a second, yeah. you, you scammed me. I, I gave you the product. You owe me the money. Right. But, but if I've bought into the hype and I purchased you, you a ticket, tickets to a if show, I bought a yeah. ticket, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to learn this lesson exactly one time. Yeah. And, and that's my point. That's where I feel like we've gotten soft. We're just so interested in buying the BS and then we're interested in blaming somebody for it. Uh, okay. So let's try to end this on a happier note. Uh, I think that it's clear, Ed, that you and I will not be in beachside tents at a fire festival inside anytime soon. No. And I think that um, the lessons of a Billy McFarland or an Adam Newman I hope that our listeners take from that uh, kind of what you have applied your whole life, which is to be skeptical. I think it's healthy starting point to be skeptical, not cynical. I'm not a cynic. I'm a very optimistic person, but I'm a skeptic. And I think- Is that a tough line for you to walk between cynicism and skepticism? Not not at all. I think it's very clear. I I think it's very clear the difference. You know, a cynic wants something to fail. A skeptic has doubts that it will. But as a skeptical person, once evidence is presented that it is working or that uh, what I believed about it before is no longer true or I've had, I have new facts, then I'm prepared to believe. That's good. Okay. I like that. And that's a good way to end this. This is The Head and the Heart. You can listen to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podcast One. And follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. Send us messages. Let us know what you think of the show. And this episode has been produced by Casey Morris. Thanks for listening.